0: I started in ministry as an intern at Rolling Hills Christian Church, Topeka, Kansas, in 1988. So it's been a while, a little over 30 years that I have been doing this. And man, I have to tell you, it's been a joy. Over the course of these three decades, though, I have met some really interesting people. 99% of those people, I would say, fit in that same category. They have just been a joy. But there's the 1%. The 1% that are not a lot of fun to be around. In fact, it's, it's hard for me to even leave them in the interesting category because that 1% can be terrifying. Let me, let me give you a couple examples. Before we built this building, when we were in our old building where the hospital is at now, one Sunday morning, I hadn't been here that long, maybe six, eight months, we had a lady that showed up in church for the very first time and the only time. When the service was over, she started walking around among the crowd in the building much smaller than this. Everybody was crowded in it. She was walking around purposefully touching people, touching people, laying her hands on people. I thought it was curious when she came and laid her hand on me, didn't say anything, and then she just moved on. And I watched her as she moved on. She went right to Ray Brosman. Ray had been leading worship that morning. And she laid her hand on Ray. And then I saw her go to a few other people, and I, I, was, I was intrigued. But I didn't know what the story was, not until Monday morning. When she came into my office, and if you remember that building, the way everything was set up, the office right outside the sanctuary, she had just come in and sat down in a chair across from my desk, and she asked if she could hold my hands. Now, I'm not a, a real touchy individual and so I I was at first tempted to say absolutely not but I was feeling pastoral and so I said okay and so I stuck my hands across the desk and she grabbed hold of them and she just sat there not saying anything holding my hands for a little while she said can you feel that can you feel that and I said you got to help me out what are we talking about because the only thing I could feel was her hands she said do you do you feel that energy and I said I I don't. What are you talking about? She said, there's an energy between the two of us. And if we could combine our energy, I am absolutely convinced that we could heal Lincoln County of asbestosis. So will you combine your energy with me? I pulled my hands back and I started visiting with her a little bit more. Found out that she was a member of the occult. Sent here out of Sandpoint. She had opened up a little shop and a house and her goal was to try to bring her energy, if you will, into this community. And she did so utilizing asbestosis as her opening. She wanted to heal this community of asbestosis. It didn't take very long to find out that she wanted to do it through demonic power, or that's what she was wanting to present. I finally found myself so full of the heebie-jeebies that I wasn't sure what to do when the lady said to me, can I come around and touch your head? And I said, no, you may not. And so I'm just drawing a big old line right there. She told me that she'd been walking through our crowd, touching people, trying to find different energies within our church because she believed the church would be instrumental in her mission. I said, ma'am, we are not on the same page, not at all. And she was a little bit taken back by that. And she said, you don't want to heal this community? I said, oh man, do I ever want to see this community healed. And that's going to happen through Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about a physical healing. We're talking about a spiritual healing. And I said, can I pray with you? And she said, well, I believe that'd be okay. And so she sat back down after trying to touch my head. She sat back down and I prayed for her. And at the end of my prayer, I prayed in Jesus' name and as sure as I'm standing before you, this is what happened. She shrieked shrieked, the loudest, shrillest kind of yell I've ever heard jumped up and ran out of my office because I had prayed in Jesus' name and I never saw her again and I'm pretty happy about it. In fact, I'm very happy about it. She fits in that 1% category. There's another lady after we had built this building about 15 years ago that came to worship with us. She had opened a business here in town as well. Her business was to contact the dead. So she would tell people that she could contact their loved ones that had died. Husbands, mothers, fathers, children, even children that had not been born that had died in the womb. She advertised that she could contact them for you and you could talk to them through her. When we found out that that's what she did and she was coming to church, she'd always stand right there in the back. She never sat down. She just stood there in the back. When we found out that's what the case was, she and I had a conversation. And suffice it to say, it didn't go well. Because I told her that what she was advertising and what she was talking about with people goes directly against Scripture. And she said, what do you mean it goes directly against Scripture? So I opened up to Luke chapter 16 and I read this passage to her. There was a rich man, this is verse... And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I explained to her that a great chasm has been fixed between the living and the dead as well, and that there isn't communication that happens, and anything that would represent that is demonic. She didn't like what I had to say, and has not been back in worship with us since. My point being this. People have been fascinated with the issue of death for a long time and there is a a lot of wrong teaching and misconceptions about death. There is a lot of wrong teaching and misconception about what happens after we die how we can talk to those that have died. There's a lot of wrong teaching and misconception about people from the dead coming back and communicating with those that are still living. There's all kinds of wrong teaching, and most of it is tied to the occult. Most of it is satanic. And if it is left unchecked, if it is never corrected, if it's never confronted, it will lead other people astray. In this particular case, or those two particular cases, that's what they were after. The occult is always looking to deceive. It's always looking to lead people astray. And if it can do that, if the occult can do that through something as personal and as real as death, particularly the death of loved ones, then it'll find traction and it'll be successful. I use it, speaking of the occult, because it's an it. That's really what it is. Driven by the power of the devil, driven by the demonic, and it is always something to be avoided. And there are openings, casual openings, into those paths that if we don't shut them down hard can remain in our life and be very, very dangerous. So we have to shut them down. Paul did that for the church in Thessalonica. He corrected some wrong thinking on the issue of death. And he does it really powerfully. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. If you want to open to First Thessalonians 4, stick a marker there, put your finger there. Whatever you have to do, get ready to map your Bible for some strong teaching on what happens when we die so that you'll be able to go back and answer questions anytime you need to. We're going to get into some good stuff. But let me start with this before we get to 1 Thessalonians. It is my experience, we'll just call it that, it is my experience that most of the occult teaching that has any kind of connection to the Bible is from the Old Testament. It comes from the Old Testament. And if we build our belief on death and what happens after death, if we build our belief on eternal life only from the Old Testament, we are only getting half the story. We have to be really careful because in the Old Testament, though it speaks of resurrection, it does so in such a veiled way and so seldom that we're never going to really find the hope in the Old Testament that we long for, the hope that we find in the New It is such a problem that when you get into the New Testament, you can see the battle that people had over it. There were two different groups of people in the New Testament within the Jewish faith that were considered teachers of the law. They were broken into two segments. One was called the Sadducees, and the other was called the Pharisees. And there was a pretty significant division between the two particularly in the realm of the supernatural. Because you see, one group, the Sadducees, didn't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in angels, demons, heaven, or hell. They struggle to believe in miracles. The Sadducees struggled to believe that God was really moving and active in our world. Then over here on the other side, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural. And there was a division, huge division, because of the differences in their belief system. Don't believe me on that. Listen to what the Bible has to say about it. So keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians 4, but join me in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, we'll pick up in verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 22, 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.' Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? They thought they had a trap, they thought they were about to spring it on the creator of the universe because they didn't believe in the supernatural. So they didn't believe that God could do things even in the heavenly realm that go beyond our comprehension. So they were trying to paint this very practical question in a manner in which it would trap the Lord. This is what Jesus said, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So he set the Sadducees straight. Or at least he took them to the woodshed on this one particular issue. When they thought they had the best of him, Jesus reminded them that they didn't. Now, you want to see how that escalates, this difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Then let's go together to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, the Pharisees' party, stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid of Paul, or afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. It was such a huge division that the Bible says a dissension rose among them. They were the ruling class, these were the leaders of the Jewish faith. They were the ones that everyone turned to. They were the political parties of the day. And there was such dissension between them that they had to get Paul out of there, basically under the cover of darkness, or he was going to be torn in two. Can you imagine two political parties being so divided about things like this that it would turn violent? Can you? (laughs) He said, tongue in cheek. We'll just leave that alone. That was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees struggled with resurrection. The Pharisees believed it. There was no problem for them. See how this can be such a divisive issue for people? See how it can be so contentious and so confusing? You have one group called Teachers of the Law saying there is no resurrection. You have another group called Teachers of the Law saying there is a resurrection. How are we supposed to figure out what truth is? Well, in Thessalonica, that got escalated because they were, in Macedonia, a Greek culture. So philosophy drove everything for them. They lived by the philosophical. Anybody's opinion, anybody's idea was welcome. Just come share it, and if you can defend it, we'll call it valid. That's how the Greeks approached philosophy. That's how they approached their beliefs. There really were no absolutes. If you like it, if it feels good to you, then it's totally okay. On this subject of death, remember how confused they were? We talked about this our first week in this study. In the center of the city of Thessalonica, archaeologists have found this inscription. After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. With all of their philosophical beliefs, this is what they came to the conclusion of as far as death was concerned. Those same archeologists have continued, no pun intended, digging around, and they have found several different graves in the region of Thessalonica and then out throughout Macedonia with this inscription on it. This is scientifically proven through archeology. span I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. That's how they approached life and death. That was a prevailing idea. Raina, do you have your mic right now? Where is it? To my left? Okay, I'm going to grab number seven, Ethan. We'll see where we go with this. I want to ask Steve Snockenberg a question about this. So you keep reading what's up there. And Steve... If you don't know Steve, Steve is one of our elders. He is also the funeral director in town, and you have been a funeral director for how long? For 28 years. Steve has dealt a lot with death. He has dealt a lot with people that have to try to work their way through this issue. He has dealt a lot because he is a Christian, not only an elder but an ordained minister, because he is a Christian who treats his business world as a ministry. He has addressed this over and over and over again. And he didn't know until right before the service that I was going to put him on the spot, and he didn't know what I was going to ask him because I wanted a very real, very raw response Steve, when you see this and recognize that that is inscribed on a number of headstones in the region of Macedonia, what goes through your
1: mind? Well, it's kind of sad to say. It's kind of sad to say that. Um, uh, there we go. There we go. Um, people in our community believe that very thought. Hmm. And not just any ordinary people, prominent people within our community believe that very thought. And there's no hope there. There's no hope at all. Um, When you have no hope, there's nothing to live for. And Jesus gives us all the hope that we need. Death is the last step in this life that gets us to the next and without Jesus there's no hope of going any further I've heard people right here in Libby say there's nothing beyond this there's nothing out there they believe just like the the Russian astronaut that he saw nothing out there when he went up there and there's no God but there is a God there is a creator Uh, he has a son and his name is Jesus and eternity Church, eternity is forever, and it only comes through Jesus. And that's the hope that I have, and I know that's the hope that all of you have as well.
0: Nice. Thank you very much. That's why I didn't give him any warning. That'll preach. Way way to go, Steve. I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. There is no hope in that. A lot of Judaism today would still hold on to that. Their only purpose is in this life, because everything is based on the Old Testament. They forget that the other half of the story is in the New Testament, and friends, the other half is the best half, because that's where Jesus is at. Let me show you how Jesus changes this equation. This is found in the book of Second Timothy, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, the good news. Jesus is the rest of the story. Jesus is the best of the story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 26 verses of that, the apostle Paul would line out resurrection, the truth of it. You don't have to turn, just listen. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you're believed in vain. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was for they, so we preach, so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's the resurrection. There's the resurrection. Folks, listen to me on this. The doctrine of death is progressive And it is gradual. Even the biblical doctrine of death is progressive and gradual. So if you only build your doctrine on the Old Testament, you run into a brick wall. But if you build it on the New Testament, it took time to get there. If you build it on the New Testament, there is great hope. There is great hope. And that's what we hold on to. After we die, there is great hope. It's not lost on me that Paul was in Corinth when he wrote to those in Thessalonica. That's where Timothy found him and gave him the report. And then Paul wrote back to this other church that he loved. When he was in Corinth, he was dealing with some of the same wrong thinking about what happens to believers when they die. So now as he's facing wrong thinking in Thessalonica, it's right there, fresh in his mind. And so he just continues it on. He's in Corinth when he gives us this beautiful picture of what resurrection looks like. And he's writing to the church in Thessalonica to set their minds straight so they don't get sucked into some traps, easy, common traps, cultural traps that surrounded them. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And before we get to it, let me just do this. I want to set the record straight so that everybody knows what happens to a believer when we die according to the authority of the Word of God This is not philosophical. This isn't a conglomeration of different ideas and thoughts. This is the authority of the Word of God. If you're a Bible mapper, go to the front cover of your Bible and write, What Happens When We Die? And then you put these scriptures in there so that you can go back to them for your own study or to lead somebody else into truth. You may want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection of the dead, because that is the most expressive place that you will find in all of the Bible on that subject. But then, once you've written that, put 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Now, the way Bible mapping works, you get all of those scriptures under the heading at the front of your Bible, but then in the margin of your Bible next to each one of them, you write your next place that you're going to go so that you have your waypoints all the way through the Bible, and you can skip right through it. It's a really cool tool. Use it. I've been teaching it to you for nearly 20 years now. Use it. It works. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. I love how Paul starts this. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Very simple teaching. To be away from the Lord is to be in the body. To be at home with the Lord is to be away from the body. So when a believer dies we go directly into the presence of the lord now pay attention to this from philippians chapter 1 verse 21 this would be your next spot so from second corinthians chapter 5 go to philippians chapter 1 verse 21 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me yet which shall i choose i cannot tell I am hard pressed, this verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul was ready to leave this world and go be with Jesus. Those two passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Philippians chapter 1, are really the most authoritative passages in the New Testament about what happens when a believer dies. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I desired to depart and be with Christ, Paul says in both situations. But then he gets to 1 Thessalonians, and he starts fixing some things there too. Because the church in Thessalonica believed in the resurrection, and they believed that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. They were grabbing a hold of all of that. But when it came to the return of Jesus, they were concerned In fact, a bit nervous, worried, anxious, or afraid that those who had died and were already in the presence of Christ would have an advantage over those that remained. So it got them all stirred up. If Jesus is coming back for us, those that have already died and have found their way into the presence of the Lord, well, they're they're the varsity team. We're the junior varsity. So Paul had to fix that. And that's what he does in chapter 4. So, Huge, long introduction to get to the remainder of the message, but we're going to go really fast. So join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and listen to how Paul corrects their thinking and in the process gives us another passage of Scripture validating what happens to believers when they die. So your map is not complete yet. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, About those who are asleep. When you find that statement, those who are asleep, it's talking about Christians that have died. When you see that in the New Testament, that's just another way of saying believers that have died. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, let me stop right there, verse 14. That's a really cool passage. Because if you apply logic, and logic is a Bible study tool, if you apply logic to it, here's what you will learn very quickly. We can't come back with Jesus if we aren't with Jesus. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 becomes the last waypoint on your map. Jesus is bringing with him those that have died in him. So to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. When we desire and to depart with and be with Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that that's what happens. It's very cool. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. You know how we said when we started this study, if you were with us a few weeks ago, that from time to time we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool? We're about to jump into the deep end of the pool. Put on your goggles, grab your flippers, here we go. If you don't like that illustration, grab the saddle horn, you're in for the ride of your life. If you don't like that illustration, hold on to the wheel real tight, because we're going to go real fast, and it's going to get crazy. If you are paying attention, if you are a student of the Bible, then Paul just just shared something that should have made you go, what now? Because... If those who have died in Christ are going to come back with Jesus, and then he says the dead in Christ will rise first, how does that work? This looks like a seeming contradiction. Those that have died in Christ are coming back, but the dead in Christ will rise first? This doesn't make sense. Jesus is coming in the clouds. The dead in Christ will rise from the ground. How do we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that By understanding that the New Testament shares something that is either a stumbling block for people or it is such an extreme mystery that they never pay attention to it. Most people fit in the second category. It is such an extreme mystery that we never pay attention to it. What I'm talking about are the two resurrections. There are two resurrections. Some of you are ready to say, hold on, preacher. It is hard enough for me to wrap my mind around one resurrection. Why are you now going to talk about two? Because the Bible does. The Bible does. And I'm going to show them to you because I don't want you to believe me on this. But just so we're all on the same page, take a look at what they are. The first resurrection is the resurrection of life. The second resurrection is the resurrection of death. The resurrection of life is the one that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is the resurrection of the bodies of those that have died in Christ. It is the point where you receive the glorified body. Until then, your soul is in the presence of the Lord, but at this moment that he's talking about, that's when you receive the glorified body. Now, there are two other passages of Scripture that link all of this. So let me show them to you. The first is in John chapter 5, verse 28. And you got to love how Jesus starts this. These are his words. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these are in red. You pay close attention to how he starts what we are about to hear. Do not marvel at this. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now remember we said there are two resurrections. There they are. comes from the mouth of Jesus, not the mouth of Phil. comes right from Jesus. Here they are again up on the screen. Resurrection of life, resurrection of death. One is for believers, the second is for those that have rejected Christ. Now, let me show you Revelation chapter 20 so that you can see it a little more vividly, starting in verse 1. I love watching those of you that have your Bibles open right now. This is good stuff. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Two resurrections. They are bodily resurrections, and judgment takes place at each. The first one happens directly after the rapture of the church. That's the resurrection of life. It's for those that have died in Christ. For about seven years, it appears during the tribulation period that that resurrection will continue. It's kind of a progressive revelation for the the tribulation saints. Somewhere over 200 million people will come to know Jesus in a seven-year period. They will also be resurrected, and they will face the judgment seat of Christ where they will receive glorified bodies and their rewards in heaven, and they will reign with Jesus for a thousand years then the resurrection of the dead happens at the end of the thousand years. Two resurrections. The first resurrection and the second, they're separated by a thousand years biblically. That second one, that's the resurrection of death. Those that have rejected Christ up till now, during the seven-year tribulation period and during the thousand-year reign of Christ, they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They'll stand before the great white throne judgment. And they will hear the Lord Deliver to them their sentence for eternity, and I promise you, not one of those sentences will be good. Not one of them will be good, and they will last forever. There are two resurrections, friends. There are two resurrections. And Paul helped set that straight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because that passage becomes a bridge between John chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 20 so that we can understand how it works. The dead in Christ will rise first unto the glorification of their bodies in the first resurrection. And that's where they will stand. We will stand if we die before Jesus. Stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And hopefully hear those words well done. Folks, it's that first resurrection that you focus on. That second one can scare you. It shouldn't because the first resurrection brings hope. The first resurrection is about Jesus. The first resurrection is the one that speaks to believers. And the way to experience it is by following Him. Two weeks ago, my son-in-law sent this to me late at night. It's been bouncing around on Facebook. Some of you may have seen it. In fact, I know some of you have already seen it. But it's really good. It shows us exactly how to follow the voice of Christ all the way home. It's about seven minutes long. It won't seem like that. Stay with it.
2: I was in Alaska doing a lawsuit. We're way out in the Aleutian Islands, getting ready to leave and go back to Anchorage and then home. And I had a ticket in my pocket to get on an airplane. A pastor came up and he said, listen, I can save you money. I said, how's that? He said, I flew a small airplane up here. And I fly a small airplane and I can take you in my little airplane and you can save your ticket and this did not sound I said gee thank you so very very much but I've got this ticket we'll just make our way on home me and this other lawyer with me he said no 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 you gotta do it you gotta do it and against every better judgment I had I said okay well we went out to the airport took us by his little plane and I looked at it and I thought well one good thing it's shiny then he walked around it we got in he's on the left front I'm on the right front the other lawyers sitting right behind me and he started it up and it started up just fine well we taxied out I said should we pray he said yeah that's a good idea we normally don't I said well this time we're gonna (laughs) and I'm telling you I prayed five eight minutes I prayed a long time we went and got on the runway he starts down the runway The plane lifted off ever so gently, and we start climbing, and it's wonderful. Not a problem in the world. We started climbing and we flew probably three, four minutes, and something happened that will never leave my mind. The pilot turned to me and he said, we're going in the clouds and I can't fly in clouds. They make me pass out. I said, clouds make you do what? (laughs) Now it's been cloudy all day. And we go right up into the clouds, and you can't see anything. And he looks at me, and his eyes roll back in his head. And he starts mumbling, and he passes out. Passed out cold. Now, I grabbed him, and I shook him, and I said, come on, you got to wake up so I can kill you. Now, we are in the clouds, flying along with no pilot. And my friend in the back seat said, we're dead, aren't we? I said, there's a very good chance of that, yes. He said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. But there was a radio right there, and I handed him the microphone and I said, Start asking for help. So he's in the back seat reaching up and he said, Hello, hello. We didn't know any proper radio etiquette. All we were saying was hello. And somebody answered back, Hello, hello. Don't you guys know proper radio etiquette? And I said, Give it I said, we don't know nothing. Tell him, we're in an airplane with a passed out pilot and we don't know how to fly this plane. The guy said, I'm a freighter flying out of Anchorage on the way to Tokyo. And he said, you're telling me you have nobody who can fly that plane with you? I said, tell him that's correct. Now you gotta understand, I am sweating bullets. He said, the first thing I'm gonna do is start circling so I don't lose you because I'll fly out of range of your radio and you won't have me anymore. And he said, I'm gonna get Anchorage emergency for you. An Anchorage emergency will be the people that can maybe help you try to save your life." After about five minutes, Anchorage came on and said, "'We understand you have a passed-out pilot, and those of you do not know how to fly that plane.'" We said, "'That's right.'" They said, "'Well, the first thing we got to do is find you.'" And I'll never forget what this man at Anchorage said. He said, "'My job is to get you home safe.'" He said, "'That's my job.'" But he said, "'Here's the deal. If you want me to get you home safe, you got to promise me you'll obey my voice.'" He said you can't see me but i can see you and he said if you're not going to obey my voice you're going to die when you can't see anything you have no idea how disorientated you become finally he said okay i found you now hear me clear he said you're four minutes from a mountain he said you're going to crash in that mountain and die follow my voice i never said i have to follow your voice is that reasonable You see, I understood without his voice, I had nothing. And do you understand? Without God's voice, you have nothing, nothing. Finally, he got us turned. And he said, I'm freezing all the traffic in the area. He said, it's gonna take me an hour and a half to get you to Anchorage. And there's a lot of weather between you and Anchorage. You're in for a rough ride. And he said, I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look at what's going on outside. I don't want you to pay attention to the storm just my voice he said if you start watching the storm you will die but i'll take you through it now because they cleared all the traffic several pilots those nighttime freighters those 747 started talking to us they said we're praying for you men you're going to make it but listen to the voice that's the key they said trust the voice you realize your head is full of voices and everybody in this world wants to talk to you and everybody wants to be the controlling voice and God says I want you to be a living sacrifice I want you to put yourself on the altar and let my voice be your voice finally we went through the worst of the weather but there was still more and then the voice came back and it said now I'm going to line you up. He said, I'm going to bring you in right down the runway. And at the foot of the runway are some lights, and they're in the form of a cross. He said, don't you forget this. The cross is the way home. Finally, he's bringing us down. We still can't see anything. And all he kept saying is, stay with me. My sheep, the Bible says, hear my voice, and they follow me. Finally, just a couple hundred feet off the ground, we saw the cross. I landed the plane. In fact, I landed it seven times. (laughs) Finally, it all came to a stop, and the minute we stopped, the pilot woke up. The voice said, Thanks for listening. I watch them crash and burn all the time because they won't follow my voice. They don't understand I'm the one who can see them even when they can't see me. But they get the voices in their head and they kill themselves they self-destruct thanks for listening to the voice then they put us in a motel room in about four in the morning they knock at my door and i opened the door and a man was standing there he said hello david i said you're the voice you're the one who got me home he said i am Do you understand one day you're gonna stand before him and say, you were the voice. You're the voice that brought me home. If you're not on that altar as a living sacrifice, your head's full of voices. And then we wonder why kids crash and burn. We wonder why marriages are shattered. And the Lord's saying, I'm the one who has the voice all I can remember is that voice saying stay with me stay with me don't listen to what's going on in your head and don't watch the storm stay with me and I'll take you through tonight you have a God who has promised to take you through a living sacrifice holy.
0: It's almost as if that was written to mirror First Thessalonians chapter 4. There's a lot of disorienting voices out there, particularly when it comes to this issue of death. If we will listen to the only voice that matters, and that's Jesus, he'll lead us home. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He's the voice we listen to. All the other stuff, well, it's, it's intriguing to study, but Paul just wanted to know, you stay with Jesus all the way through because he's the best part of the story and the only voice that matters. If you have not responded to his voice, why don't you let today be the day that you do? If you have not secured your relationship with him, why don't you do that today? If you've not been faithful unto baptism, why don't you do that today? Let all the questions that exist around you and within you just be washed away in that water. Just respond to His voice. Why don't you stand with us? I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. And when we sing, respond to the invitation if you need to. Father in heaven, thank you for being the voice that leads us home. I pray that you will silence all the other voices so that yours is the only one we hear. I pray, Father, for those that need to open the door. As you knock, Lord, I pray they will. I pray for those that need to be baptized. I pray that they will. I pray, Father, for those that are listening to other voices. I pray they'll be silenced. And I pray that their hope will be in you. In Jesus' name, amen.